All right, be honest. How badly did you mess up the first time that somebody left you alone and said, you've got this, I've trained you, I've prepared you, now I gotta go and I'm leaving you in charge. They left you with all that responsibility, that anxiety. Proverbs 20 verse 21 says, the glory of young men is their strength and the splendor of old men is their gray hair. And you know what, as I get more gray hair, I begin to understand that proverb a lot more. Someone asked me why we repeat the same Bible lessons every couple of years. I mean, couldn't we have some new lessons? You know me, I get sarcastic. I was going to say now and then, but the truth is a lot more than now and then. And I turned and I said, well, you know what Jesus said? As soon as we get these lessons down and we start doing them, then we can have some new lessons. See, the reason we're in this wash, rinse, repeat cycle is because we are a forgetful, sinful people. The same lessons keep coming and going, but we haven't quite figured out what to do with them yet. God says you've got this, but we're not so sure. That's because, by the way, God understands our life in grace. We tend to think of it otherwise. At the ascension, the disciples asked Jesus, are you finally going to restore the kingdom of God? I mean, they've been asking him this over and over again. But that particular day, Jesus says, funny you should ask that. You know what? You've got the keys to the kingdom, so get out there and go for it. He adds, by the way, don't start until my father equips you with the spirit because you are going to need a lot of help. I imagine the disciples, you know, kind of looking at the ground, kicking the dirt and saying, Jesus, I kind of thought you were going to do this. You know, we were just going to kind of be your backup singers. And then when they don't hear Jesus responding, they look up and they realize he's rising up right before them. And now suddenly they're standing there apparently alone with the command, go and make disciples. You've heard me say our calling as a church is to bring people into the presence of God. We can't and don't save them. We just bring them into the presence of a God who has and can. What does it mean to be in the presence of God? I mean, often when we hear it described, it's a religious feeling, or it's being in church, or singing hymns, or saying our prayers. And it could mean any and all of those, but it's not enough to just go through the motions. The Bible talks about quite a few people who weren't believers and yet found themselves in the presence of God. Oh, and don't forget all the people in Bethlehem and Jerusalem back around uh, 30 AD that literally bumped into Jesus. I mean, literally bumped into him and had no idea that they bumped into God. We need to differentiate between being in the presence of God and feeling like we're in the presence of God. While we're here on this earth, it is impossible to always feel like we're in the presence of God. But that doesn't mean that we aren't in the presence of God. Most of us have figured out when we're in heaven, we won't be able to get away from God. That's kind of the definition of heaven, being in the presence of God. But what does that mean? Well, 2,000 years ago, the disciples were all hanging out, talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. One minute he was there, and the next he wasn't. Or was he? See, the Bible says he rose up until the clouds hid him from their sight. But was Jesus really gone? I can't count the number of times in 35 years of ministry where someone who had lost a loved one said, you know, I miss them. I really, really miss them. But they're right here in my heart. How about the number of times we've said, you know, I know mom or Aunt Tilda or grandpa's in heaven, but I swear yesterday I smelled their perfume or their aftershave. Or I remember the time that we made peanut butter cookies and forgot the peanut butter and I couldn't stop from laughing. Or I remember all the times that they used to look at me and say, 
Don't ever give up on yourself. Even though they're gone, we fully expect to turn the corner and find them standing there smiling, arms open wide, ready to share stories with us. The here but not yet moments are where we get so caught up in whatever it is we're doing that there is nothing left of us to do anything else. Where we are at is 10 degrees warmer than everywhere else around us. When the light is so bright where we're at that it is just glorious. Even if sometimes we're the only ones who see and feel and recognize that. The problem is when we define these special moments as being in the presence of God, well, it means that when we don't feel like doing anything, when it feels 10 degrees cooler, when the light is so dim we can barely see, we assume that we aren't in the presence of God. I wish I could give you a simple checklist, a recipe to guarantee that you would always feel the presence of God in your life. But it doesn't work like that. A watched pot never boils isn't nearly as accurate in its description as it's a matter of faith. The truth is, we are always in the presence of God. We just don't always recognize it. The problem isn't God. It's us. God is never more than a heartbeat away. But when we talk about the presence of God, what we often mean is some sort of ethereal experience, a moment, or hopefully an hour, or a day, or preferably an entire life, where every one of our five senses is so overwhelmed by love and grace and beauty, where the religious part of us is one with God, so we don't know where he ends and where we begin. These are the moments like St. Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 3, or St. John talks about in the fourth chapter of Revelation, or when Peter is standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and says, man, this is great up here, Jesus. We're going to build some tents. We'll just kind of camp out up here because, you know, Moses and Elijah, I'm sure, have a lot of stories to tell. We don't need to go back down there. We want to stay here because this experience, this feeling is so amazing. Most people think of heaven as what happens when life ends. And that's definitely part of it. But did you ever wonder why Jesus went around saying the kingdom of God is at hand? He didn't say it's coming or, you know, wait just a little bit. He says it is at hand. Most of us aren't real comfortable with the now but not yet. The now but not yet is when something is ours, but we don't have our arms wrapped around it. We don't have control over it. It's like when the one we love has boarded the nonstop flight from Newark to Honolulu, which, by the way, is 10 hours and 55 minutes at its best. But they text us just before they take off. We know they're on the way, but they're not here yet. And us checking flight tracker every five minutes isn't going to get them here any sooner. But as that little airplane gets closer and closer to that tiny little island out in the middle of that blue Pacific, we know they're almost here, but they're not here yet. On Thursday, the first leg of my flight home was from Denver to San Francisco. I had a window seat. Captain said we were going to arrive 12 minutes early. We were on final approach. I was looking out the window. We were just seconds and feet from touching down when suddenly the engine spooled up and we took off. An airplane had crossed the runway in front of us and it would have been really bad if we'd gone ahead and landed. We got back into the pattern and our 12 minutes early turned into 12 minutes late. Now 12 minutes is nothing. A couple weeks ago, Kayla spent five hours on the tarmac while she waited for them to replace a toilet. A few years back, I spent over an hour circling San Francisco before the pilot said, you know, we're running low on fuel. So we actually flew over, landed at Oakland, refueled, and then took off to fly to San Francisco. 
Another time a storm wouldn't let us take off. We spent the night and then the next day before we finally got on the plane. So we actually arrived in Honolulu two days late. Now, the ticket always said Honolulu, so we knew our destination. Everyone on the plane was going for, to Honolulu for a reason. They had it all figured out. We were given an expected arrival time. And by the way, all of us had to decide what we were going to do with that transit time. Were we going to eat, sleep, watch movies, talk? What were we going to do? And then, then when things didn't go as expected, when things came up, we had to decide what we were going to do with all that extra time that we had. You see, it really does matter. So the disciples kept asking Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom of heaven now? And Jesus would say, it's right here if you're willing to accept it. But obviously you're not ready to accept it yet. So what you're talking about, only the Father knows when that is going to happen. But you have more than enough to do while you're waiting, if you're willing to accept it. So are you in a hurry for Jesus to come back? Are you ready for the last battle and all that stuff from the book of Revelation? Are the end days just something you learned in confirmation? Or are they the moment that you have either been greatly anticipating or greatly dreading because it's when you're going to meet Jesus face to face? There was an article in the news last week asking believers if their church was an institution or a movement. Was it a noun or a verb? Is the purpose what happens to you, the feeling of church? Or is the purpose something much bigger and far more important than a weekly worship service, Bible study? and some fellowship activities. If heaven is real, if when we leave this body and planet, we are going to live forever, and the only real question, I mean, to be honest, the only question that actually matters that we get answered before we leave is where we're going to spend that eternity, then church cannot just be something that happens on Sunday. It cannot just be a noun. It cannot be an institution, because if it is, then it is the greatest failure of all time. It used to be just secular media where I would read articles calling the church narrow-minded and exclusionary and how terrible it was that they taught that people who didn't believe in Jesus weren't going to go to heaven. But in recent years, even some religious media started to echo that thought process. Let everyone believe what they want to believe. Let heaven become what everybody wants it to be. And let everyone in. Which sounds great. Until there is a God who created everything. And that includes heaven then that God gets to decide what heaven is and who gets in and who doesn't. We might disagree, but disagreeing with an almighty and all-knowing God doesn't sound like a very good idea, and we're probably not going to win. And if that same God who gets to make all the decisions about heaven said that his people, which he calls the church, are to be his ambassadors, his artists, his teachers, his greeters, his personal connection with the rest of the world, what do you think that means? The church is to bring people into the presence of God so God can do what only God can do. Instead of thinking of heaven as what happens when life ends, we would actually do better of thinking about it as what happens when life, and I'm talking about real life, actually begins. Real life defined as when we figure out that these years that we spend on this planet, as long as they might seem on certain times, is infinitesimally tiny fraction of our actual existence. And this life is more than just getting ready for eternity in heaven. In the now but not yet, we realize heaven is already ours. It's not going anywhere. And until it happens, God's given us an awful lot to do. 
St. Paul uses the phrase eternal life to describe both the end and the goal of the process of salvation. The here but not yet understanding of heaven leads to sanctification. It's not the other way around. God justifies us through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of his Son and gives us heaven as an undeserved, unearned gift. And that, by the way, big period right after that. And in the here but not yet understanding, we then get to live out this life, whatever that life may be in the presence of God. Now, God isn't going to be any closer or more real when we get to heaven than he is right now. The only difference is we will finally be able to see with our eyes what we can only see with our soul now. Hebrews 11 puts it this way. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof, the proof of what is not seen. Ephesians 4 says the reason God showed up in our world as a baby and continues to make himself known in history and even in our lives, if we're willing to open our hearts and souls, is to make sure we don't forget, to make sure we don't get lost, to make sure we remember who we are and where we're going, that no matter how long the delay or the transit time, we know that we have things to do, and we pray for both the strength and the courage to get them done. Eternal life in the fullest and most beautiful sense of the word is to recognize that you are already in the presence of God. Right here, right now. Just as Jesus uh, was with his Father the whole time that he was also with us. And that brings us back to today, the Sunday of the, after the ascension. As Jesus was taken up into heaven, which is a very clunky and awkward phrase, it almost sounds like there was an angel pulling him up from both arms, I imagine the disciples reacting the same way I do on most days. I'm not ready for this, Jesus. The stakes are too high. The job's too overwhelming. Wouldn't it be better if you did it? I mean, couldn't you just come back, go on a worldwide speaking tour, show everyone some of those miracles you were famous for, heal a bunch of people, speak with that amazing authority the Bible keeps saying you had, and I'll be right behind you, smiling taking care of all the hotel, flight, and car reservations, making sure you got plenty of fish and bread and wine, and handing out cards with your website, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok accounts, and email address. God says to us, you, you the church, you've got this. Jesus is coming home, but I'm sending the Spirit to guide and direct you. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times when I feel the Spirit's power and my confidence level is at 11. But there are way too many times when I just don't feel anything. And it scares me. And that's why God tells us to keep reading the Bible. The stories of Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, Moses, Mary Magdalene, Peter, Paul, and all the rest of them. We see his people, his church, mess up. And they get it wrong a dozen times before they finally get it right. His people learn as they go. And he has to be okay with it because there are no stories of anyone in the Bible getting it right the first time and never getting it wrong, except, of course, the story of Jesus. We're pretty inefficient, and we are definitely out of our comfort zone. But here we are anyway, charged with being Jesus' hands and feet and voice in the world. And I suppose if we're his hands and his feet and his voice, it also means that we are his tears, his laughter, his healers, his teachers. And maybe that's the point of the whole ascension thing. Since he isn't here physically anymore, he is present through us, as imperfect and sinful as we are. And maybe that's what the world really needs to see, that God doesn't just love perfect, got their act together, and taken it on the road people, but broken, insecure, unsure, hesitant, but still passionate, loving, and caring, and saved people. 
We would be fools to get over how profound yet ridiculous it is that God trusts us with something that is this important. The God of the universe allows sinners to do his work, which is helping other sinners figure out the whole life, death, and uh, resurrection thing. So I guess it's time we stop staring at the clouds and hoping that Jesus is going to come back and do it all for us. We've got work to do, and by the looks of things from the world, there's an awful lot of work for us to do. So our prayer gets a little more intense as we pray for God to equip us, to love us, to push us, to enable us, and especially, especially forgive us as we go about His work. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.